She's sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. The Democrats don't care about facts. They don't care that the, there was no collusion. Remember, the last Congress, more than 60 Democrats voted for impeachment before the Mueller report ever came forward. You listen to the new freshmen said the only reason why they ran was to impeach the president. For too long, America hasn't been treated fairly by Mexico, by China. We know about the theft of intellectual property. We know about the stealing of technology. Um, we know that yeah, they have right. not treated us in a decent and fair way. And that is true with Mexico as well. Well, people ask me questions like you. You're asking me a question. Don't ask me the question if you don't want me to talk about it. And now, Stacy Washington. Welcome back. Welcome back. Hey, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for being here today. You know what? We have Cassie Smedley coming on uh, next segment. And we're going to be delving into um, a little bit more of this discussion around Biden or Sanders. And yeah, we're going to get into Kirsten Gillibrand. In fact, we're going to do that right now. First, if you want to call the show, and please do if you, if you feel like calling in. 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. So first off, uh, let's, let's, we got the call lines out of the way. Um, oh, and I wanted to mention that if you go over to StaceyOnTheRight.com, you can check out our 60-second spots that we do here on AFR um, and Urban Family Talk. And you can listen to those. You can share them. Um, you can find this, the link to our SoundCloud account where all of those are stored. They've been updated, and there's some really good ones over there that you can check out. And you can also find the link to the Teespring to buy the Stacy on the Right Show gear, which gets shipped directly to you. I got nothing to do with it. So it's really fun and easy for you to get what you want and have it shipped to you in whatever time constraints or fashion that you'd like to, to pay for. Um, so you can find that at StaceyOnTheRight.com. So right now you got Chris Wallace and it's this town hall with Kirsten Gillibrand. And I think what strikes me the most about this is how she's working herself up into this. This She's like, she's she's prepared. She knew she was going to get asked about abortion. Instead of answering the question, she decides to go ham on Fox News. Now, the question was, where do you stand on late-term abortion? And the lady who asked the question, she looked like she was, you know, somebody's grandma, definitely somebody's mom, a little bit on the older side. And when I say that, I'm only trying to describe that she was kind of gentle in her demeanor. She was soft-spoken. And she didn't ask the question like I would have. Y'all know me. I would have been like, oh, good. Finally, I get to ask somebody who thinks they want to be the president. Hey, Kirsten Gillibrand, why do you support dismembering babies in the womb at the eighth and ninth month? There you go. That I mean, sorry. Sorry, I don't have a, a better attitude about it. Actually, I'm not even sorry. Why do I have to have a good attitude about asking people why they support infanticide? Now, listen. She gets asked that question by a very soft-spoken, gentle-hearted, sweet lady. And this is what she comes up with, which prompts Chris Wallace to go in on her, which I loved. I loved that because Chris Wallace does not have to sit there and listen to her rip on his network. So he didn't. It's number four. It doesn't Senator, exist. Senator, I just want to say we brought you here for I know, I just, an hour. We have given you, we're, we're treating you that. very fairly. I understand that maybe to make your credentials with the, with the Democrats who are not appearing on Fox News, you, you're going to attack us. I'm not sure 
it's frankly very polite when okay, we've invited in you to way. be here. I will do it in a polite way, but it's a to her well, point. Well, I just, I just think, why don't, we, why don't we, I'm instead of talking about questions. Fox News, why don't you answer Susan's so, question? The debate about uh, whether or not women should have reproductive freedom has turned into a red herring debate. And what happens on Fox News is relevant because they talked about infanticide for 6.5 hours. 6.5 hours, uh, right before President Trump's State of the Union. Um, mentioned it 35 times. That is not the debate of what access to reproductive care is in this country. It doesn't happen. It's illegal. It's not a fact. Okay, so let's, uh, let's unpack a few things here. First of all, he was so right to stop her right there and call her on her drama for trying to make the story, the, the question, the answer, not the story, but the question, the answer about Fox News. Fox News programming should not feel castigated by her. And I, I, I wish to high heaven that someone from over there would be listening to this show and hear me say that they are in charge of their own programming. And if Kirsten Gillibrand and Media Matters for America and Right Wing Watch are keeping track of how many times you say infanticide, 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 keep talking about it, keep putting it before the American people because nothing matters more than how a nation treats its unborn and elderly. Nothing matters more than how you treat those who cannot defend themselves. We once knew that because we said no to slavery. We said no to the idea that Americans could own other people people like I own this coffee mug, like we own our dog, that we were the kind of people as a nation who would treat slaves, not just as property to be used, but to be raped and to tear the families apart and to put the very psyches of human beings on a, in a meat grinder. We said no to that. And now here we are, we're back and it's worse. It's, it's at least as bad. Because I don't feel like listening to people say one is worse than the other. It's at least as bad. So that's why she got worked up over it. And you hear her get all shrill about it. Here's a few things that she points she tried to make. That women are making a life or death decision. Full stop. If it's a life or death decision, why does a woman get to make that? Be but if someone out there makes a life or death decision about someone else and says, I, I choose death for you and kills them, that's called murder. But a woman making a life or death decision about an unborn child, well, that's a choice. You see the demonic nature of that whole thing? She says whether or not and when you want to have your children, that's what she said, whether or not or when. Well, we do control that as women. We control it through the decision to or not to have sex. Oh, yeah. Too bad she's not listening to the show. She says men want to exercise control over women's bodies. Men in state legislatures want to control women's bodies. No, they want to control the lives growing inside those bodies. They want to say those lives have value. They have merit. They deserve to live. If you make it, let it live. How many children to have, she said. So is it really about how many children people are having? I'm, I'm, I'm not getting that out of this thing. It's not, it's. Yes, the woman says, I have two children. I don't want to have any more. Well, if you don't want to have any more children, you go get your tubes tied. You don't want to have any more children. You go on some kind of birth control. You don't want to have any more children. You stop doing the thing that makes the children. We know what it is. Everybody knows what it is. It's not like it's a secret. So then she goes on some more. 
And this is really short. It's 20 seconds. But you have to hear the tenor of what she's saying to understand the fervor. I, and, and, and my question to you is, dear listener, do you think we would ever hear her get this worked up about how many troops we have overseas leaving their body parts in the sand? How many troops we have over there in the sandbox leaving their mental health and coming back with PTSD? How many of our troops are over there spending second and third and fourth tour while their children are here in the United States waving the flag and growing up without mom or dad? Could we get her to get this worked up about those people? Could we get Kirsten Gillibrand to get worked up about the moms and the dads, angel moms, angel dads, gold star families, anyone who's lost a family member to either war or the illegal alien problem? No, you're not going to hear her get that worked up about that. She'll get worked up about illegal aliens and their rights, but not about you and me, not about our rights as American citizens. We're the taxpayers and we're the voters who would or would not say yes to Kirsten Gillibrand. But I mean, don't don't let's get all worked up about it. Let's let her get worked up about it. It's number six. This president has emboldened legislatures in 30 states to begin to criminalize that decision criminalize the decision of whether or not and when you want to have your children. Why should male legislatures across this country decide when you're having children, how many your children you're having and under what circumstances? <laughs> so, she says, these are all the decisions that men are making. Uh, and then she says, President Trump has emboldened the legislatures. Now, y'all know I like to give President Trump credit where he, you know, where he deserves it. But is it really President Trump who's emboldening these legislatures or is it the culmination of decades of prayer by the saints? Is it women who and men, women and men who've been standing outside these Planned Parenthoods across this country praying for decades? Isn't it them? Isn't it isn't the, the prayer vigil people where they bring their folding chairs and they stay at the Planned Parenthood and, and Sometimes they're there at night. It's a 24-hour shift where they have someone praying around the Planned Parenthood for 24 hours. And so they come out with their chairs and they have a little cooler in between them. And they sit and they pray and they, they drink soda or, or coffee or, or, you know, sip soup and they pray. They take a two to four-hour shift. Did you know that was going on? I mean, I, I give the president credit, but I'm sorry, President Trump doesn't get credit for state legislatures finally standing up with their back straight with a little bit of steel in their spine and saying enough is enough. I think we could actually, besides thanking Almighty God, we could thank Governor Northam for talking about delivering a live baby and putting it on a warming tray so the parents could discuss whether or not it should be killed. I think we should thank Kermit Gosnell for his house of horrors, decades of him dismembering babies, snipping their spines, and then keeping them in jars like trophies. We can thank David Daleiden for showing us the seedy underbelly of an industry that sells human body parts for cash, for profit, Planned Parenthood, to the research organizations all over this country, research hospitals and research universities. That's what got this ball. It, it, the ball's already rolling. But if you want to know what put the steam behind it, what was the kick in the pants for these men and women in these state legislatures across the country? This has been coming for longer than Donald Trump has been president. It's been coming for longer than he has been the uh, candidate Trump. It's been coming because every day babies are aborted in this country. 
and their blood cries out. It doesn't go unanswered. The fact that God has relented and allowed us to be around doing what we're doing without the visible repercussions for this long is only his grace and mercy that we're operating under. And we better not get it twisted. So no, Kirsten Gillibrand, a woman I'll probably never meet or speak with. No, honey bun. It's not because Donald Trump has emboldened anybody. People might be feeling bold and they might, you know, be like, yeah, you know, I'm bold like Trump. Sure. <laughs> okay. But I don't think that's what's driving this. I know it's not. Because when we're at our Planned Parenthood here and we're standing outside praying and doing what we do, um, we're not we're not praying to Trump. We're not, we're, he's not getting mentioned at all. What is getting mentioned are the statistics. 24 states worth of Americans gone. 40% of the black population in America gone. And untold millions of women walking around with the pain of the burden of abortion. And they're silently carrying that shame. And she thinks people are bold because of President Trump. She doesn't understand what's happening here. She's not even close to understanding what is going on. The war that we are waging is not about President Trump. It's not because of President Trump. It is with the powers of this age. It is a spiritual battle that we are engaged in for the very future of this country and also for eternity because you don't want to be on the wrong side of that. And it sounds great. You know, I'm, I actually, when I, when I see the hate mail in my spam folder and I just skim through, I don't read the hate mail. So if you're one of those people who listens to the show and you've been hate mailing me, your stuff's going to spam. And the only reason I know it's there is because sometimes like one of our AFR reporters had sent me a story on Friday and I couldn't find it. And he and I were on the phone this morning and I went in and it was in my spam folder. And as I scanned through, I caught two emails from genuine emails from listeners that I responded to. And I caught a bunch of, I could see them, all the profanity. And I just kept scrolling down until I found his, clicked on it and put it back into the inbox. And then I went there. So I'm not, I'm not getting your hate. Um, but I understand what's happening with you is you're, you're enraged because I keep coming on here and telling the truth. And so you, you send the, the hate emails thinking that that's going to stop something. But you're, you're, you're just a symptom of the problem. You're not the enemy that we're engaging with. And the hate emails, they don't drive me. They don't stop me. They do nothing. They're irrelevant. And I'm only mentioning them just so you know that you're having zero impact. And that's pretty sad for you. For you. <laughs> not for me. <laughs> All right. We'll be back with Cassie Smedley after this. Stay I've been leading tours to Israel for over 25 years. Hello, everyone. I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. I started going to Israel with my dad in the 80s and uh, learned how to lead tour groups. And so been doing it ever since. And now my wife has joined me, Allison, and we love taking folks who support AFA and listen to AFR to Israel. And we'd love to have you come along with us as well. That's in March of 2020. We're letting you know ahead of time because we know that people need as much advance notice as possible to get ready for a trip like this. So if you want to go with us to the Holy Land in March, go ahead and get the information at twholyland.com. That's twholyland.com. All the information on the March trip to Israel is posted there and hope you can join us.
This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. Are single-parent families just as good for children as two-parent families? Some of the headlines recently in newspapers and news magazines seem to say so. But all you have to do is look back at academic studies to see that, in nearly every case, two parents are better than one. One older family study deserves renewed attention. Dr. Patrick Fagan, using data from the National Survey of Children's Health, found two important factors. Children who grow up in an intact family and attend religious services do better than children who do not. There is a significant discrepancy between children who grew up in intact two-parent families and those who came from broken homes. They also found a similar discrepancy between those who attend religious services weekly and those who worship less frequently. They found that children in the former groups were five times less likely to repeat a grade, less likely to have behavior problems at home and school, and more likely to be cooperative and understanding of others' feelings. They also found that these differences held true even after controlling for family income and poverty, as well as for the parents' education level, race, and ethnicity. In essence, the study suggests that the best prescription for society is a stable family and family worship. In this environment, children thrive emotionally and achieve academically. You know, in a sense, this study is a flip side of studies that were published years ago about the impact of divorce on children. In my book, Christian Ethics in Plain Language, I talk about the three E's of negative impact of divorce. That would be emotional impact, educational impact, and economic impact. So whether you look at these positive studies or the earlier negative studies, you can see the importance of family and worship. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. For a free copy of Kirby's booklet, A Biblical View on Antisemitism, go to viewpoints.info slash antisemitism. Viewpoints.info slash antisemitism. You can watch a live stream of the show on Facebook or YouTube at Stacy on the Right. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. All right, welcome back to the show. Uh, we are still working on getting our guest together. She's calling in from overseas, so we know uh, that's going to be pretty interesting. But we'll get her shortly. Um, right now, I want to point you to our online social media sites. You got to check us out on there. Uh, we post new stuff, and it's good stuff over at Stacy on the Right Show. That's on Facebook, and then on YouTube and Instagram. And Twitter, it's all the same. Stacy on the right, you can check it out. Um, so we are also going to be digging into <laughs> Elizabeth Warren and her racial background, and this radio host saying that she was like Rachel Dolezal. Um, who, if you remember, a couple years ago, we actually interviewed Rachel Dolezal. Um, we've had quite a few very interesting people here on the program. So what I want to do while we're waiting here. Um, for that, I want to listen to this. This it's just a short clip of this guy named Charlemagne, and he's talking to Elizabeth Warren, and he's not giving her any room for that nonsense about her being a Native American. Um, it's number two. I, I want to clear up some stuff because you sure. know there's a lot of criticism that's said about you, so I want to give you the opportunity okay. to speak on these things. Uh, the Native American. Mm-hmm. Do you regret taking the DNA test? Oh, look, I can't go back, mm-hmm. but... You know, you got to explain to a lot of people that don't know. Now, you came out and, and said that you were Native American. And, Long ago. And yep. they found out that you weren't, and people were very upset about that. The same for the people who don't know. No, but a lot of people don't, don't know. have no much time. Because we're, we're putting people <laughs> up to her as well, so go ahead. So, I grew up in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I learned about my family the same way most people learn about their family, from my mama and my daddy and my Mm -hmm. aunts and my uncles, and it's what I believe. Um, But I'm not a person of color. I'm not a citizen of a tribe, and I shouldn't have done it. Um, If you had a chance to do it over, would you? I I can't go back, you know, but I shouldn't. I can't go back, but I shouldn't. Now, she can be very informal, but why is she talking like that? Is it because she's sitting in a room with nothing but black people and she feels like she has to kind of, you know, get get a little more like she has to have a little bit more of a persona because she's in that room? It's kind of crazy to me that um, as as you're going on with this story that it, it has legs, it's still there. And I said that I said, in, in my opinion, she's done. She can continue on with the campaign. But this is this that was the moment when she decided to take that DNA test when she wouldn't let that go. That was the moment when she kind of said she wasn't presidential candidate material. I, I don't know why. I don't know why she felt so just she she was so strong on having to have that done, having to to get that that it's it's not an, a credibility issue um, because Americans didn't need her to be an American Indian. Um in order for them to vote for her for the presidency. And if she truly wanted to be the president, it seems like she would have, hmm, it seems like she would have, you know, kind of weighed the cost and the balance and said, I'm not doing this. This isn't going to be beneficial for the presidential campaign. It's as if she thinks the only way she can, uh, like, interact with people of color is if she has some kind of people of color heritage herself. And that that's just not that's not real. I don't there. I don't have one friend who I'm friends with because that person is white or they're black. I don't have one friend that I said, I got to be friends with that person because they're that ethnic background. I don't know anybody who does that. There are people who like to spend time or prefer to spend time around certain individuals. But when you talk to them, it's usually because those individuals, they share something in common. They have they like to be together. Accordingly. And maybe it's because Elizabeth Warren bought into the hype about blacks voting for Obama because he was black and she wants the black vote. So she feels like she has to have some kind of um, thing herself, like she has to be some kind of ethnic background herself. Again, ludicrous. Absolutely ludicrous. All right. We have Cassie Smedley. She is calling in from the UK. Cassie, thank you for joining us today from from one of my favorite places. I've been there once. I love the UK. Well, it's great. Although um, I wish I'm actually not in the UK, but I was talking about it, so I'm sorry. Oh, where are you? I was there. I'm with you. Oh, see him at the normal spot. He's been all on YouTube (laughs) all day. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Well, sorry for the confusion. No, no, it's okay. I do too. I had I was I was the first thing I was going to tell you is I wish that I was over there with you, but you're not there, so we can wish we were there together, looking at Melania's outfit. Seriously. Oh yeah. Oh Oh, my god. Okay, so what do you know good from over there? Because you have all the insider contacts. I've been watching the White House press correspondence. You know, I get the emails, and I've seen the pictures, and I've seen, like, they were, they were at Westminster Abbey, and they had lunch, and they did this and that. But what's, what's going on over there? Well, good things are going on, and it's despite the media's best efforts to try and make this into some dramatic visit. You know, they've got the mayor of London and all of his comments. And of course, the president responded to those, as he should, by the way. But when the president and Melania Trump 
got off Marine One to greet the Queen and the royal family this morning, all was right. All perspective was brought back. That is that our countries are great friends, great allies. Bind, the real tie that binds us is that we were the allies that freed a country and preserved freedom around the world 75 years ago. And I think it's so wonderful that the president said, made this visit to London a priority for his first stop on this trip overseas, starting with our great friends in London, and then he will end, of course, in Normandy uh, to honor the 75th anniversary of D-Day. And that's the big picture. Everybody wants to talk about pettiness and wants to talk about protests and wants to pull things up context as they constantly try and do. And yet, when you watch the coverage and you see today the mutually warm welcome between the royal family and the first family and the great respect that clearly is on display between our two countries, that's what we should be focused on. And that's what we need to be talking to our kids about as we discuss why our president is taking this time to be overseas this week. Um, and so I'm I'm happy to see that they seem like they're getting along really well. But I mean, you know what, Cassie, my expectation is that even if they don't like some of the comments that the president has made in the past or they disagree with him on some issues, my expectation is that because they've met him before, it's not his first state visit, that they would have already developed a rapport the last time and that they would be um, gracious hosts to him and Melania. I just I, I'm not one of those people who thinks, oh, you know what? You know, they're going to be petty like high schoolers or they're going to be petty like some mom's groups you can sometimes be in where, you know, everybody lives in the same neighborhood and they can afford to act like, you know, total donkey butts. We're talking about dignitaries here. They have like ways they're supposed to be together, right? Oh, certainly. And of course, you know, the queen has been on the throne for 60 years. She has seen a lot of people that she may not disagree with. But I will also tell you this. I have had the great privilege of being in rooms with President Trump, candid small group settings and large group settings, but in particular. And he is uh, so, so wonderful. He's wonderfully candid and he's so genuine in his interactions with people. And he's a great listener and a great conversationalist. And he picks up on little personal things about folks and he remembers them. And I'm confident um, that they have a very warm relationship. And the queen, a traditionally apolitical figurehead, she also, I think, is a great conversationalist, and you can tell that they, as they were going through some of the gifts and artifacts in the in Buckingham Palace, that they were having really warm conversation. And I think that that's just a testament to both of them understanding not just having great respect for the relationships between countries, but also great respect for the occasion. And uh, again, I don't understand why People don't applaud that. We should be so proud to have a president and first family, really, first lady, Melania Trump. Can we just pause and talk about mm, her for a minute? I how know. incredible she is. The outfits. But we they should were be so, good. so proud to see the leaders of the free world coming in, the leader of the free world coming in and, and being such a wonderful ambassador for our country and um, and seeing this great relationship on display. I don't I don't know at what point that became something that we got mad about. We should be very proud of <laughs> we our should. president and the first family today. They're wonderful ambassadors of our country. So, okay, I can piggyback on that. Although 
my experience is I'm always in the next room or I'm in the room, but I'm so far away that I can't actually meet the president. The kids and I have a running joke that I need a T-shirt. Been in the room with President Trump six times, still never met him. But I've seen him (laughs) working with people like he comes in and he starts shaking hands. And I see the people he's shaking hands with. Even when like they're I've seen this with black people. I've seen it with Hispanic people. I went to the uh, White House reception, not this year, but last year for the Black History Month. And people are laughing. Mm -hmm. He's smiling at them and and cracking jokes. They're laughing. And everyone's really happy to, you know, get get a chance to say hi and shake his hand. So I've never been in a space where he's like, you know, just reviled unless it's from the media stand where I've been on the media stand with um, I'm I'm over there with a media press pass and he's at the front. And when he gestures to the media and the crowd starts booing, then you can feel the kind of angst coming from the media people. But other than that, I've never seen him not be warmly received um, in, in when it's person to person interaction. Now, you mentioned that they got off of Marine One. So let's do a little logistics here. So are you saying they took a C-130 mm-hmm. and put Marine One on it and flew it over along with the Beast? Is that what's happening right now? Because I, I I knew they took the Beast over, but I didn't realize they took Marine One as yep. well. Yeah, although that's not totally unprecedented. I think they do that for a lot of overseas visits. But oh. this is also something I think is interesting. They did this the last time he was in London a year ago as well. Um, logistically, rather than navigating the motorcade through the city, this where they're staying, which is at the ambassador's residence to Buckingham Palace, um, which is about an hour away, I believe. Um, so this made a lot of sense logistically and for the time frame to be able to just marine one up and down. And it also is less disruptive to mm-hmm. the traffic. That was my understanding of it when I read about it a year ago. So, yeah, they land on the ground of Buckingham Palace and then the Queen was right outside to receive them. Uh, today. So uh, quite a sight, I imagine. Yeah, I'm telling you, I'm just like so impressed because I so I knew they took that big, the the big, huge car. So I was like, you know, and I can imagine them driving that up onto, you know, inside of a big plane. Um, You know, I was in the Air Force. I've seen stuff like this. I know it can happen. But the Marine One thing, when you said that just now, I'm thinking, wait a second, they're taking the helicopter too? This is, this is, I know it's not unprecedented, but I think it's kind of cool. Like for kids, I wish the media would focus on some Mm -hmm. of that so kids could see that portion of it because it's really, logistically speaking, what goes into getting the president and the first lady and, you know, the, the traveling dignitaries with them from our government over to the UK. It's a lot more involved than simply saying, well, we got to put everybody on Air Force One. It's so much more than that. Oh, most definitely. And I also think that it's, this is a, a testament to, and I don't really speak to this with any confirmed authority, just things that I've read, and then you can imagine the president's schedule, that he likes to keep a precise schedule. He also likes to make the most of his time on the ground. And so being able to go in your helicopter as opposed to an hour commute with a motorcade across town and all of the disruption that might cause as well, this allows for him to stay on schedule, be there, make sure that he's given, uh, getting the time that he needs with whoever the a principal is that he's meeting with, in this case, the queen and the royal family. And one other thing I want to say about when you're, as you say, whether you're at a rally with the president with tens of thousands of people, or you get to be in a room at the White House or at you know, a fundraising event with a small round table, one word that always comes to mind is present. The president is, as we know, or like, gosh, how does he keep up this exhaustive schedule? And he's doing however many events, and every single one, he just goes on and he's on, and he loves it. He really gets his energy from interacting with people. But he is present, whether that's 
delivering to the tens of thousands of people who have waited in line for hours or going up and meeting with the Queen of England. He's right there, and he's very engaged, and he is engaging, and he does his homework to understand his audience and make sure that he's being appropriate for that audience. And that's something that I think really makes it hard for even as big as naysayers. They come away with this positive experience saying, well, gosh, you know, he was really great. We enjoyed it, or he was so engaging, or he interacted with people in a way that I had never seen a politician or a head of state interact. And gosh, that's really special. And so that's how I think you know, the Trump effect happens and why so many in the media who only want to see the negative as often as possible, they missed it in 2016. They're missing it right now. And I think they're going to miss it again in 2020. As we've joked before, they're going to wake up the day after election day in 2020 and say, what happened? Once again, but it's because they're missing all of these moments where the president, the president, I should say, never misses an opportunity to connect with people, whether that's at a big rally or again, the Queen of England. And that's kind of the magic of President Trump. Well, I have to echo your comments. I've seen one of my favorite videos of the Queen of England is um, she's in well, I don't know what room or what building she's in, but she's someplace where they have the royal crowns. And one of the people who keeps track of the crowns and cleans them and all of that, he hands her the crown. It's one of them. He kind of hands it over to her on the table and she pulls it over and she says, oh, I quite like this one, you know, in her British accent. And she, <laughs> she says, but when I wear it, I turn it around. She said, it's not worn like this. And she turns around. She says, it's not worn like this, is it? It's worn like this. See, now there, that's right. This is how I put it on. This is how it's worn. She said, and I do quite like this one. It's, it's, it's one of my favorites. And she, when you, you get a real peek into her personality as she's talking about this, it's a big, huge one. He, he asks her if it's heavy. And she says, oh, it is. I think it weighs 12 pounds. And she, she talks about wearing it. And it, it's like, I don't know, a minute and 30 seconds. But you get the feeling that she's quite a lot of fun to chat with. And she really enjoys interacting with people. And I can't imagine that President Trump doesn't have at least a good rapport because she is one of those people who stays above the fray for left-right politics. Right. And his job is not to do that. But as a dignitary over in England, I think it, it's a, a balancing act. And I really I, I just hate the way the constant refrain is he's making mistakes or he's doing something that is hurting our country when clearly uh, from the pictures I saw today, it looked like they're doing a great bang up job as you did. Thank you so much for joining us today. Cassie Smedley, RNC national spokesperson and Trump, Trump, Trump 2020 campaign. Always great to be with you. Thanks. Stacey. All right. Thanks, Cassie. Okay. We'll be back with more. Um, we're actually going to listen to the rest of that audio from Charlemagne and Liz Warren. Um, and then we'll take calls if you want. 866-963-2037. 866-963-2037. of the time, an abortion-minded mother who views an ultrasound or sonogram of her baby will choose life. Here's the story of Candace. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom. Thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. 
There are currently pre-born centers which do not have an ultrasound machine. Would you sponsor a machine today? Dial pound 250 and say keyword baby. That's pound 250 and say baby. Or go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Your love could save a life. I come to steal, kill, and to destroy. You belong to me. Your soul, your mind, and your body. You chose death over life. You are mine. Forever and ever and ever. Hell is real. Matthew chapter 25 verse 46 says there will be those who will receive eternal punishment in hell, but the righteous will have eternal life in heaven with our Savior Jesus Christ. Which will you choose? Let's go deeper at UrbanFamilyTalk.com. I am Hank Weinblum, and if I was confident that I did not think of a word of the week, I would say that. Well, that's a hint that our word comes from the parting statement by special counsel Robert Mueller. That is the office's final position, and we will not comment on any other conclusions or hypotheticals about the president. Hypothetical, an idea or question that may or may not be true, something that gets put out there to discuss or not. Mueller not interested in talking hypotheticals, nor was Justice Brett Kavanaugh during his Supreme Court hearings. I can't give you an answer on that hypothetical question. You're asking me to give my view on a potential hypothetical. Hypothetical comes from Greek, meaning foundation, as in the foundation for an argument, even if, for now, you're just making this stuff up. Because there's a difference between saying it when it's a hypothetical to them saying it when it's actually happening. With your word of the week, Hank Weinblum, Fox News. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Wait, your family told you you were Native American? Yeah. Charlamagne tells me I'm Dominican, yeah, but I don't believe you him. are. How long, how, long, how long did you hold on to that? Because there was some report that said you were Native American on your Texas bar license and that you said you were Native American on some documents when you were a professor at Harvard. Yeah. Like, why'd you do that? So it's what I believe. You know, that's, like I said, it's what I learned from my family. When did you find out you, when did you, find out you weren't? Well, you know, it's, it, I'm not a person of color. I'm not a citizen of a tribe. And tribal citizenship is an important distinction and not something I am. So. Were there any benefits to that? No. Boston Globe did a full investigation. It never affected, nothing about my family ever affected any job I ever got. Mm -hmm. Um, She didn't get a discount in college. You kind of like the original Rachel Dozov a little bit. Rachel Dozov was a white woman pretending to be black. No, this is what I learned from my family. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is what I learned from my family. Now, don't you think her family has to be sitting up at home like nobody told her that we were all the way American Indians? Nobody. Who told who told Liz we were American? There has to be somebody in her family who is up in the attic right now searching for old papers and documents so they can try to figure out, is it just me or did she make this up and now we're getting thrown under the bus? as having told her some stuff, because you know how it is. 
grandparents will tell stories to grandkids. And while they may share a, a number of different stories, especially the grandkids, they'll tell stories about the grandkids' parents. So, you know, when your dad was this or when your mom was your age or whatever. But the family history type stuff gets shared with everybody. So everybody in the family has the same general idea. If you, I mean, wouldn't it be odd if you were all in the family with, and, and one of your grandparents or both of your grandparents were telling wildly different stories from one kid to the next or one grandkid to the next? Wouldn't that be a bit of a red flag? So we know that if it's family history, it's shared, and a bunch of her other family members either thought they were American Indians too, or they didn't. And so that's what makes the whole thing so, it's, it's really iffy. It's weird. Uh, and, 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 and like he said, it makes her kind of Rachel Dozel-ish. Dozel-ish. Dozely. Okay, we, do we need to make up a term for this? For where someone pretends to be a different ethnic background and they get found out and then they just won't let it go? Only the thing is about this story with, with Liz Warren is it's not that she won't let it go. Now, because she took that DNA test, it's everybody else that won't let it go. It's now going to be a constant issue, especially in communities of color when she tries to go on, like you just heard, she's on this radio station, which is heard by millions of people. And what they're wanting to do is they kind of had a bone to pick with her and they were exposing her for her background. They were exposing her for what she has done in the past. And I, I can tell you, I know she said some research group or university did a study to, to ensure that she never received any benefits from claiming to be an American Indian. But the whole point in adding a, a ethnically diverse, you know, hey, I'm, I know I'm, I look like I'm a Caucasian person. This is what, you know, because that's what she looks like. But I've got this ethnic background is because then you get access to some of the affirmative action stuff, which again, can, does anybody like hear the, the, the bell tolling on this whole affirmative action thing? It's abused. It, and it's abused. I'll just leave it at that. Well, I'll leave it at that. And I will say that's what that, uh, like so-called secret score they're now going to assign. The college board is going to assign this like secret score to a bunch, uh, to every single application. And they're going to do that based on a secret formula. And that will only be seen by college administrators that are looking at your kid's application and all of their, you know, attending test scores and everything else. And the disadvantage score will tell them if a kid is black and if the kid or black, Hispanic, some kind of ethnic minority and whether or not they came from a disadvantaged background. So black kids who come from middle-class homes, you know, you, in, instead of it being like, um, they're looking for diverse candidates, they'll just be looking for kids who are of ethnic backgrounds and poverty stricken. Again, not an indicator of how, not an indicator of how the student will perform because it's really the test scores and the child's background in high school that can determine that. And also, if you look at the essay process, that used to be that they could read the essays and tell if a kid was motivated to be in college. Nowadays, it, the whole system, the whole system is just completely messed up. And, and you know, we've had uh, Joel Patrick on the program. Joel Patrick, he's a young guy. He runs his own business. Um, he's a tree trimmer. And he's so he's in the trades and he touts that as a part of his conservative message. He, and 
He doesn't come from a shabby family. Both of his parents are college educated and professionals, and a number of his siblings have gone on to be engineers, etc. But he chose the trades and he makes a good living. He lives well and he touts for other kids. His most his latest post on Instagram, he says, why do Americans tell kids to go get an education and borrow money to pay for this education and then get a job that won't they won't make enough money to pay for the education they borrowed. And he's so right. So I'm not against college. I'm for it. Absolutely. But I'm also for kids who want to do the trades to do those. I'm for people finding their life's calling and their life's work, something that they enjoy, not being pigeonholed into everybody going to college or nobody going to college. The, the true answer is each individual child and their family coming up with the options that work for them and the college counselors at high schools help. You know, you can often find really great advice in friends who their kids have already gone to college and you can listen to them talk about some of the pitfalls that they, that they navigated and, and it can help inform your choices. But it's really interesting that um, we're starting to see this. It's like people are rising up and saying, you know, enough is enough. I don't have the drive. I, I don't, I don't want to go to college for four years, but I do want to get a skill so that I can have a good job and take care of myself. And so they're going into the trades and we need these people. We need people to work in the trades, just like we need people to be engineers and doctors and, you know, God forbid lawyers. We, I mean, we, we need them all. So um, it's just fascinating to me that they've got this diversity score and what they're, what they're basically saying is if you are in a two-parent household and you make a whole lot of right choices and you have your kids and your kids do well in school and they earn good grades and you save a little bit of money for college. You know, you don't save for the whole shebang, but you save some money. When you get your kid's application together and put it in, we're going to punish you because you're not disadvantaged. It's not about helping people who need the help. It's about disadvantaging people who they feel have too much going in their favor. You know, in good and well, there are plenty of people who come from two-parent households and, you know, they have a little bit of money saved for college or what have you, but there's still struggles. What about physical illness? What about injuries? What about all the things that, that go into just living an everyday life? I feel like it's just more of an opportunity for them to drive wedges between us to, for them to divide us. Do you know what I mean? I'm this, this disadvantage score, the diversity score, what it'll do is it takes affirmative action out of the picture. So yay for that, but it puts something even more subjective into the picture. And if you think you, if you think those parents gaming the system um, in Hollywood with their $500,000 checks and the fake tests that they took and the fake, uh, what's it called? Rowing. Some of them were on rowing teams that didn't exist. And some of them had never rowed before in their life. So they just took pictures on rowing machines. If you think that story was crazy, wait to see what people will do once they figure out. Because you know, somebody's going to figure it out. Someone will figure it out and put it on YouTube. The diversity score is these five or seven or 10 factors. And every single family will be on YouTube watching that video and going, okay, some of them will say, forget it. We just, we'll go to the school that you can afford to go to. We'll pay what we can. What, you know, we'll just, we'll make it work. Oh my gosh. So there's a phone in here that's connected to our, 
Oh no. Oh no. Okay. Sorry about that. Wow. That's some interesting live radio in the last few minutes of the show. Um, so there'll be parents who are gaming that system. There'll be people looking it up on YouTube going, well, I got to just, I, you know, I got to game this thing. I got to make this happen. Um, whatever they think it is, I'm just going to cheat and, and I'm going to get in. And if you don't think that's true, look at what they did with that, the, the Hollywood admission scandal. And I hate to say it, but it occurred to me uh, over the weekend we were working. So we had these two little sheds out on the side of our house that, um, well, I'm, I'm not going to go into it, but we, we were working on those little things, putting some new windows in there. And I got to, you know how your mind just runs off on a tangent when you're working with your hands. And I got to thinking, you know, do we really know everything about this scandal? Like, are there, they said there are like 50 families involved in the scandal that they were able to find. But do you think there are some other colleges that looked at their information after seeing this scandal and maybe realized that some of their students got in under pretenses, but they didn't say anything because they're like, I just don't, we don't want the name of our college involved in this scandal. Um, do you think that could be true? I mean, anything's possible, but it, the, the point I'm making is people are going to find ways to game any system that they set up to try to give stuff to one group by taking it from someone else. There is no perfect way of doing that which is why they should stop doing it. So um, I also want to mention, I don't know if you guys have seen it there. And we did talk about a little bit on the show. There's this cute little girl who does these AOC parody videos. Well, over the weekend, I saw one of an Ilhan Omar. It's a little girl. She's got on a headscarf and she's got the cutest little voice and she's parodying. I mean, just skewering Ilhan Omar. It is fantastic. You got to find it. Uh, well, the girl is on Instagram. I think if you type in tiny Ilhan Omar, just in the search window, it comes up. So funny. Like, unbelievably funny. Um, so, yeah. And then, speaking of AOC, you know, since she's moved to Congress, remember she said she couldn't afford to move to D.C. She didn't have any savings, blah, blah, blah. Well, now that she's in D.C., guess what she's what she has? She has an, a luxury apartment with a rooftop pool and a golf simulator. Now, you know her. She says that that thing is actually like a, uh, a, a public housing unit in New York City. Now, I've heard about the public housing in New York City and how horrible it is. So we know she's lying about that. She has beautiful amenities at this place. It's an expensive Washington, D.C. apartment building. And... She was talking at the town hall and people were brought it, you know, brought up that she's living there. And she said, well, what we've been taught that is a luxury should not be a luxury. Another world is possible. We can live in buildings that are not for profit or tenant owned. There are so many ways we can slice this and we can structure it in such a way that all people have the right to a dignified home. So in other words, if your home doesn't have a golf simulator and a rooftop pool, then it's not dignified. And you should allow AOC and the socialists to take all of the money from everyone and put, put it in a huge pile. And then everyone will have a, a, an apartment like hers. Never mind the fact that some of us live in houses and we don't want to live in apartments. So she says, what we have been taught and what we have been conditioned is that basic rights are a luxury and, priv and a privilege when they're not. She says, she toured a new public housing complex for senior citizen, noticing that the unit's in the building looked just like her luxury apartment. She began her remarks by downplaying the amenities in the building she moved into. 
She said, if I, I moved into this building, it's marketed as luxury building in D.C. It's an efficient building. It's clean. It has a public space. It has a rooftop garden. Y'all watch my Instagram. It has clean air, clean water. And I think about this. And I'm like, hmm, this is what a luxury building is like. But then she goes on to talk about the new public housing development she toured, um, which is a complete falsehood, her comparing the two. The newly constructed complex is built adjacent to Whole Foods, also features both an indoor lap pool and a rooftop pool, a rooftop dog park, a dog wash station, numerous gyms, a Peloton cycling studio, yoga studio, demonstration kitchen, wood-fired pizza oven, private massage rooms with hydro massage beds, a golf simulator studio, a basketball court, a racquetball court, roofball tennis court with a parabolic hitting wall in case you're alone with no one to play with. Prices in the complex range from around $2,000 for a small studio to over $5,000 for a three-bedroom. She said she moved there because of the 24-hour lobby security. And like we've been saying all along, this woman is no better than Bernie Sanders and, and all other socialists who believe in taking money from people who've earned it and putting it wherever they want to, burning it, whatever. But when it comes to themselves, they'll never turn down the opportunity to live in a luxury apartment or own two homes like Bernie Sanders does or earn a million dollars from writing a book or be worth a million dollars as a sitting congressperson who's never passed a, a piece of legislation that impacted all of us. These people don't believe the hype they're putting out, which is why you shouldn't either. All right. That's the show for today. God bless you from the heartland. Thanks for making your home at American Family Radio. I'm Stacey Washington. Talk to you tomorrow.